founder of Ransomware, and he is from Bend, Oregon. So we're going to hear a little bit about Ransomware and your ministries overseas. The video gives sort of a bare-bones look at what ransomware does, but ransomware isn't the only arm of your ministries. You have other things that you do overseas as well. Can you give us a quick snapshot of that? I can. Thanks for letting me come. Uh, One of our, well, the parent organization that we started is called Kingdom Investments. And what we do is we go and we look in third-world countries for people who um, maybe God has called them to do something and they've stepped out and they've begun to do it. We look, how can we invest in them? And so we'll go places like into villages, and we will um, maybe purchase 20 female goats and one buck, find a group in this poor village, like a, maybe a church, a little local church. Churches, Christians are looked down on in that country. Um, if you proselytize, you try to lead someone to the Lord, you can go to prison for seven years. So uh, we'll take the church, and we will give them these goats, and we'll have them invest by finding... 20 of the poorest families in a village, and they'll give one goat to each of these families. The only string attached, Courtney, is that they have to breed the goat, and we, the church has a, a goat they can do that with. And <laughs> try to cover our bases, folks. And uh, then um, one female offspring will come back to the church. The, the rest of the goats belong to them. And so... Um, We'll teach them. We'll have the church teach them jobs, job opportunities, how to make a living with those goats. Then when 20 goats come back to the church, they can reinvest those, and the gift keeps giving. So that's what we do. That's very cool. It gives the church opportunities, too, for yeah, influence. Yeah, that's my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the church gets all the glory rather than a yeah. Western organization or anything like that. That's yeah, yeah, it's great. It's not the government. It's not the terrorists. It's the Christians that are helping the poor people in their in their community. So we're helping the poor, and we're also helping the church be who they need to be. That's awesome. Um, now, Nepal and India, these, these places are very far from Bend, Oregon. How do you go from being the pastor of a mid-sized church in Oregon to rescuing women out of sexual slavery and creating sustainable development? Well, I mentioned that was a good question. I mentioned that in the first service. Um, years ago, I prayed a prayer that I'm not sure I would recommend to anyone, uh, but I, I told the Lord, I said, I will go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll say anything you want me to say. The only thing I ask is that you make sure I know it's you. I don't want to wake up one morning living in a grass hut in Africa, scratching my head saying, I wonder if I made a mistake. <laughs> if I know I can do it. And I could tell you stories of what God has done, incredible. And I, I still can't believe half of what I say, you know, because they're just incredible stories of what God has allowed me to do. And this is a big part of it, touching lives. Who'd have thought? Ransomware focuses on uh, rescuing women out of sexual slavery and brothels. Um, how did you get involved with that specifically? What was the story behind that? Well, as I'm looking for investments and in people who are doing things and, and to invest in it, a friend of mine, you saw him on the film, Ramesh, uh, his family helped start 15 years ago. They were very concerned with, with the human trafficking of the girls from Nepal. And so his family started this where they would try to rescue these girls. Um, the Nepalis are very, very poor, and yet they're very, very um, beautiful girls. They're fair-skinned, and so they're, they're desired in Asia. And uh, a lot of people will take advantage of that. So his family, they were, they were working on this. And I went and... Um, watched what they were doing. They would rescue these girls. They'd bring them back to Nepal. They would provide counseling. 
um, and and just the very the love these girls their their parents don't even want them back no one wants them and um, it, it's just it's a terrible situation and so um, these girls they'd say why are you helping us even our families don't don't want us and they'd say well because our God tells us to well the Hindu religion you have over three million gods I can't keep track of my three kids but. You know, how do you serve three million gods? Um, so they'll say, which God is yours? And they'd say, Jesus. 98% of our girls give their hearts to the Lord. And, but that's how I, I came to help with that. I saw a need. The girls would make these clothing items. But Nepal's so poor, they couldn't sell them on the streets. So that's where the Lord kind of said, you do this. So we buy these products. We bring them back here, market it as ransomware. Freedom never felt so good, and we have a story to tell. So your role with ransomware is basically to ship the the product from Nepal to America and then sell it here and, and give the money back. Um, I think a lot of us here, I don't know if I had my choice, I, I would rather be in Nepal, like working with the girls, rescuing them out of the brothels. What makes you stay here when you could be over, you know what I mean? Like why play this role? Um, over here in America? Well, the boss wants me here right now, although with our situation we're talking about, I may end up going over there here soon. Um, we, we invest in the people there. And I think that we get more for our money when we empower and help the people there in their own country to stand up and to reach out and to touch the lives and to rescue lives in their own countries. And there are people that want to do that, and so we invest in them. And they do a better job than I ever could. They know the language. They know the customs. It's their people. They have a love for their people. And so that's that's par- partly what we do. We empower them to do that. That's awesome. I love of the empowering of nationals and their own grassroots organization. Um, okay, so these girls that are being rescued out of the brothels, how do they get there in the first place? Where do they, like, if they grew up in a village in Nepal, how do they end up in a brothel in India? Good question, Courtney. Um, as I mentioned, it's a very, very poor country. So, uh, you know, sometimes family members are looking for money, and maybe an uncle will sell one of the nieces or, or something. Um, many times, someone, a man will come along and he'll say, you know, if I can hire your daughter, I will teach her, I'll put her through school, I'll give her a good education, I'll take good care of her, she'll make good money. Or maybe they'll say, you know, I'm in love with your daughter, I'd like to marry her. And in that culture, older men can do this. And so um, the family, because of the situation there, the girls are not always educated. It's the boys that are educated. And there's not much of a life for the girls. It's a hard life. So many times the families will, will... They'll want the best for their daughter, and they'll say, please, you go with this man, and you'll have a better life than we could ever give you. And they'll take them out into India, and the next thing you know, these girls have no clue, and all of a sudden they're being sold into slavery. Jeez, I couldn't even imagine. um, When we've been talking, and even the last couple weeks when we've mentioned ransomware, we use the phrase rescue women or rescuing women. And I know when I first heard that phrase, I kind of had this idea that you were raiding brothels with Interpol agents or something and <laughs> learned that that was very inaccurate. Um, can you, can you explain what, like how, how are you rescuing these women out of brothels? What does that look like? Well, uh, in the situation where, excuse me, where we're working, it's called Bollywood. It's like our version of Hollywood. It's where they make all the films in India. So there's a, there's quite a demand there. And um, what we will do, we have tried raids, 
but in India, unless you want to end up in prison yourself, you have to go through the local authorities. And what we have found is more times than not, they are in cahoots with these brothels. So those have been very un- unsuccessful. Um, what we do is we ransom these girls. We pay for their release. They were purchased. They were sold into sex slavery. So they were purchased, and they are owned by these these people. And uh, we purchase them back. Many times there's like a, a mafia mentality there. And if, if you take the girls, um, they'll say, we've got to prevent this from happening. We're going to make an example. And they go back after them. And the girls are always looking over their shoulders, wondering when somebody's going to come get them. When we pay for their release, they're set free. They're, they're bought with a price. Kind of like we are, huh? Beautiful picture. We were bought with a price. We don't have to keep looking back. And so they're set free, and then we bring them back. And what does that exchange actually look like? I, I would have no concept of how much it would cost to buy a girl from a pimp. How, what are the, what's some averages there on cost? Well, I, I know that um, in the last couple of Sundays, we, you know, there's been some figures that have been thrown out, and, and, and those are kind of a, on a worldwide average for different situations. This, the place where we're dealing with this, um, the price is a lot more. Uh, many times, kind of an average, many times will be around four or $5,000 a girl. And it's incredible. Uh, but the way they, they arrive at that is it may be a six, seven-year-old girl. And the United Nations estimates 40 people a day that they service, seven days a week. And that can include being beaten, choked, all kinds of things. And, and they don't care. They're, they're just a commodity. Nobody knows they're there. Um, it's, it's a terrible, it's, it's hell for them. And so um, the owner may look at them and say, well, if I keep her for 10 years, I'm going to make X amount of dollars. Why should I give her to you for 250 And so that's the kind of bartering that we have to do. So you basically pay for what she's worth in the eyes of the pimp. Well, I can't imagine a better way to spend five grand, though. You know, it definitely seems worth it. Um, one of the objections that's often raised with programs and ministries like this is, well, if you're buying one girl out of a brothel, they're just going to buy another girl and replace her. So aren't you feeding the demand for human trafficking? What's ransomware doing about that issue? Um, it, that is true, that they will replace them. Um, what we are doing to try to stop that is is um, actually what I, can, I, I get most excited about. It's our preventative education. We go into villages and we try to teach the girls and the families the tricks that these guys are using, you know, and how, help them to learn. You know, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I'm going to give you a job and it sounds too good to be true, it's, it's too good to be true. And, and teach them to be very cautious and careful. Second thing we do, um, and we've had great favor with the Nepali government, we work at the border crossings, and they have allowed us. They have um, they have guards there at the at the uh, border crossings, Nepali guards, and so on that property, government owned property, they are allowing us to build a shack or a booth, and we can put two employees there, husband and wife, and they watch, and they're trained, and they're watching for maybe an older man coming across with a younger gal, and uh, they'll they'll walk up to him and say, hey. What are you doing? He says, well, we just got married. We're going to go on our honeymoon in India. Oh, really? Well, let's talk for a minute. And they'll separate them. And the man will ask the, the older man, so uh, what's your mother-in-law's name? How many brothers and sisters does your wife have? 
And they'll ask some questions that he should know if they're married. And they'll also be asking the gal if they don't if they don't have their answers right or if they're not feeling like something's right, they just wave their hand and the uh the border guards will come over and they'll arrest the man. And we have stopped more girls from going into that problem. And the beauty of this, Courtney, is if we can stop them at the border or help them before they ever say yes and go with the guy, they can still return to their homes. They haven't been in a brothel situation. It's less money, if we can put it that way. It's a better investment. The girls aren't going through all this hurt where they have to come back and have counseling. It's just it's a win-win situation. And you found that those programs have been pretty effective in Extremely effective. The one the one downside is that we stop them at this border or we slow it way down and they'll just start going through another border entrance. So the the challenge is then to also put some people there and to just keep moving as they move. That's excellent. So it seems like it's logical to, to have prevention be the best way to stop trafficking. Yes. Um, okay, we're going to switch gears and talk about involvement here for a second. How did you personally go from the feeling that I think most of us have about this issue of just being like, oh, that's awful, and oh, I'm angry about that, to I'm going to start a nonprofit? Like, how do you go from feeling sad and angry to to action? What was that thing that pushed you over the edge that made you say, okay, I'm going to do something now? Mine was more of a personal issue. Um, I was over there anyway, and I'm seeing this. And, and when you see these innocent kids and you see what's happening – I have three children, one daughter. She's now 11, and we live in such a blessed country. If something were to happen to one of my kids, I just have but to call 911. The police will be there. The local TV stations would put their face on, the, you know, on, on TV. There would be so many volunteers to help comb the woods, you know, Amber Alert. They don't have any of that, Courtney. Uh, many villages, they don't even have phones. Um, the families may never see their kid again. They have no idea. Even when they think that they're doing a favor and they're helping their daughter to go with someone for a better life, that's what they think. They have no clue that she's been sold into slavery, and they never hear from her again. And so, um, you know, I, it just hit me one day. If that were my daughter and if she was put in that kind of hell, I would hope someone would man up and try to rescue her and bring her home. And that's what I'm trying to do for their daughters. That's so cool. Um, by far the number one questions I, uh, question I've been asked the last couple of weeks is what can I do? Like, I feel like I have to do something. What can I do? What are some things that people can do to help stop this issue? More than, than you might think. Um, I'd say number one, it's prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Prayer makes a difference. Do you believe that? It's so true. And I know we need your prayers. The girls need your prayers. This, this situation is terrible, and it, it's huge. Um, another thing that people can do, obviously, finances. Money is very important. It takes money to run things. We can, we can run things at a fraction of a cost that we would do it here in the U.S. Um, by working with our nationals overseas. But um, purchasing our products helps. It helps keep the girls busy because uh, they make these products. It's not a sweatshop. They make them in their homes. Many times they'll all get together in one of the girls' homes. They make the products, and they can sell them to anyone. I'm just one of the buyers, but I'll buy these, bring them over here, and when we sell them, part of the money goes to buy more so that keeps them in business so they're not tempted to go back into another lifestyle. 
and part of the money helps run our operations over there, and part of it helps ransom more. So Christmas is coming. Um, I tell people you can buy a hat at the local store, um, you know, Walmart. You could turn around and get a nice hat and put a little money in the Walton family pocket. Nothing wrong with that. That's the American way, and I don't knock that. Or you can buy one of our hats. It's a better quality, and you can help set someone free on the other side of the world. The awareness issue is a real important thing. We don't spend money on advertising. It's word of mouth. If you tell your friends, if you tell your family, if you send our website link to your friends, that's a huge way of helping because if they purchase, then it helps helps with what we're doing. And you have some more uh, specific needs as well. Um, I wanted to bring up one that happened this morning. That's a specific prayer request that we could use all of your guys' prayer for. Can you tell them about what happened this morning? Yes, um, Courtney, we had this morning, in fact, uh, 4.30 this morning, had a phone call. And um, we have an order. It may be some of you who have ordered some of our products. And the girls have been making those for Christmas presents and stuff here. And uh, one of our girls, she is re- she's married now, and her husband was driving a minivan and bringing our products to the capital of Nepal so they could ship them here. And a man on a motorcycle who they say was drunk hit his rig and ended up dying. And to make matters even worse, he was a Maoist terrorist. And the terrorists, there's a huge problem there, and the terrorists are controlling most of the country. So they took this man, who's um, Chantra, uh, took his wife, one of our girls. They beat her severely. They did release her uh, this morning. Um, They're holding him, and uh, they're telling us if we don't come up with a certain amount of money, they will kill him, and they will if we don't do that. But uh, they've taken our products, and they've taken the vehicle. So um, there's, there's a lot of fear over there right now because they very well could come after our other girls and, and uh, our staff over there. So they're, this is how they operate. And so um, that's, that's part of our prayer request. If you could keep them in prayer, and um, I'm not sure I may have to fly over and see if I can deal with that situation, but I'm hoping that we don't have to. So if you guys could pray for that, that's just happening this morning. So it's a huge need that that man's life would be spared and that the the girls would be safe and his staff um, and Ramesh, who's running their programs over there, would be safe as well. Um, there are also specific monetary ways that, that people could help you. Um, can we put their, their budget up on the screen? This is, I had no idea it'd be so cheap to run this organization. Um, those are, this is his expenses. Can you just walk through these expenses for us real quick? Yes. Kingdom Investments Nepal, that is, um, that's the, the big name of the corporation of what we do over there. It's a nonprofit agency. And that's where I was telling you about goats, you know, and we do different things, uh, investing in their country in humanitarian ways. And so our our main worker, his his pay is $500 a month, and he goes all over the nation doing things. We put in a, a, a um, apple dehydrator, solar-powered dehydrator, up high up in the mountains uh, for people that were growing apples and their fruit would rot before they got it to the villages. Christians now own it. The church in that area is now has great influence because they're helping their community not lose their crops and get their, you know, just things like that. So a lot of things that we have going on. And our main office, you can see what it costs to employ someone over there um, for for a month at a time. Then our ransomware headquarters in Bootwall, 
to uh, set that up, and you can see what our our office supplies are. Our administrators' monthly salary is one hundred and eighty dollars a month. Uh, the other workers, it's one hundred and fifty a month. And then I'm just skipping down kind of through this. Our border surveillance booths and staff to set up a booth, one time fee. If we go to a new place, the we stop them in one place, so they start going into another entrance. If we go there, um, I think I mentioned the government lets us use their property, so there's no no rent fees, um, but we have to build a nice booth. They want it to look nice and professional. It's about $300 to build that, and then it's built, and it's there. And then to employ staff, we go with a husband and wife team. It's 250 a month, and they work tirelessly at helping with the border. So so these are some specific ways, and um, I thought it, it might be a cool, great idea if one of your guys' small groups wanted to come together maybe for the Christmas season and, and pitch in 300 bucks to build a house for someone so that they can prevent trafficking. You know what's interesting? I, I just was thinking about it while you were talking. We can fund our entire operation in Nepal for less than most of us make a month for one person. And so um, that's that's a good investment. That's a good use of funds. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. I just thought it might be a good way. I saw it, and I was like, you know, there's people that want to give that are looking for something specific. Here's some specific ways if you're looking for something to give to um, outside of your church tithing or whatever you want to do with that. Um, um, I think that's everything. Thank you so much, Dave, for being here. Um, Thank you. You are doing wonderful work, and we'll keep you in our prayers. Thank you. A Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and I remember going with my mom for the first time, and it was a really interesting thing. There was field trips at the Holocaust Museum, and uh, the Holocaust Museum, if you've been there, it's four stories, and you get to the top, and then you kind of start there, and it starts before World War II, chronologically, and then you begin to kind of wind your way down the four stories, spiraling down, and by the time you get to the bottom, you're at the, the end of the war, after the war, and you're looking at like the Nuremberg trials and things like that. And you kind of spin your way down chronologically. And the funny, thi- the funny thing, um, the really interesting thing was these kids that uh, were on field trips. As I was getting more and more disturbed as I went down, uh, were getting more and more numb. They, they didn't have the ability to register what was going on, the volume of the atrocities, these were real people, they weren't able to make the connection, and so pretty soon they got bored, and they started just goofing off and getting more and more irreverent, and it was just a really interesting thing, and I remember getting really like frustrated inside, and feeling like there should be a rule, you know, that only people over the age of whatever could go to this place, or that only kids could go with their parents, but I thought this whole field trip thing was stupid, um, and I think that's the way this whole human rights thing can be for us, even as adults. That the way the Holocaust was for these kids, um, the sheer magnitude of what's going on in the world today can lock us up, shut us down, and we have this kind of defense mechanism with things that we can't assimilate. We, we slowly begin to push it to the outside so that we can, can just continue on. We won't exist in a state of confusion for long. It's just the human way. And so we push it out. And um, and so I want to look at some of the smaller things. And it's interesting. There's a guy who was a scholar 
of evil and suffering. And so he went all through Europe studying what the Nazis had done because it was sheer evil. And this guy was so depressed and his life was just um, spiraling downward just because of his emotions and all the, the things he was filling his head with um, at his PhD work with evil and suffering that he came across this story from a village in La Chambon, France. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But what happened in this little village was that the church got together and they rescued all of these Jewish people. Um, punishment of death, everything else, that they could have died for it. And they rescued all of these Jewish people. And Philip Halley was so overwhelmed by that kind of what had gone on in that village that he went down there and he lived there for um, a number of months and basically interviewed survivors and all this other stuff. And then he wrote this book called Lest Innocent, Innocent Blood Be Shed. And it's a fabulous little book. But here's the interesting thing. I remember um, about two years ago when I was reading this, uh, what struck me was in the introduction that the first ever fan letter he received, that this is what it said. It was negative. Le Chambon wasn't even in the war. Nothing happened west of National Route 7 in southern France. The obscurity should be an insight to you the author. Reverend Trockme, the leader of the village, has a minuscule number of equally eccentric kindred spirits. And the letter went on to say that only vast forces like great armies make history, make and break human institutions. The story of a few nonviolent eccentrics who did nothing to stop Hitler's armed forces mattered only to a few mushy-minded moralists like me, says the author. And this devastated him. Um, and so he thought, wow, I'm going to get a lot of letters like that. He goes on to say, wow, that was, that was just a, an isolated incident. Um, but he thought, man, I'm going to get all these hate letters from uh, survivors of World War II that think this book is, is, is wrong in some way. And so he prepared an answer and he wrote back on a postcard, bought a bunch of postcards, was ready to just send this to anyone who wrote him a letter like that. And it ended up being just this one person. But he says this, um, real people with their own proper names saved real human beings in that village. And these precious few people count. And he concluded his postcard with, thanks for your point of view. Still, Something really happened there. Um, and I love that. Something really happened there. And here's a couple of small things in the last three weeks that really happened here at Antioch. Um, going back a month, Courtney and all her studies for this human rights series ran across a story of uh, a a brothel where women were being held captive down near San Diego. Okay, immigrant women that were being held captive in a brothel down in San Diego. Okay, and there had been a raid on that, and it had gotten kind of busted up. And it's near her dad's church. Her dad's church, a church of thousands. And so she basically called down there and told her dad's church, "Hey, do you realize this stuff is going on in your backyard?" And and they they really didn't know, and they basically. Um, are birthing kind of a movement to reach out to these kinds of women down there in San Diego. And that really happened. 
Um, after the first week of our series, one of our high school girls who's up at Summit comes up and got Dave Rogers' information. She came into the office and tracked down Dave Rogers, who was just up here being interviewed, tracked down his information, um, and she says to me, uh, we have a little shack in our school where we sell like the school sweatshirts and this stuff. And she goes, and the, the teacher that runs that goes to Antioch. <laughs> and I'm going to get ransomware stuff sold in our, our school little shack. And she goes, I need his number. And so I was like, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And so I was talking to Dave this morning about this girl. And he's like, wow, yeah, she called me. She said, she's, she's amazing. And she now wants to try and get a competition between the three high schools in Bend to raise money for ransomware, where it's like a competition to see who raises the most kind of a thing. And knowing this high school girl, she'll probably accomplish that goal. And that really happened here. Um, Chris Cass, who works for Fox uh, News, KTVZ, um, doing uh, the uh, TV station, not the news, but he works for the TV station, basically went in and told the news people that he's friends with about ransomware and sold the idea on them to where Thursday night there was a news piece in the local Central Oregon News on ransomware. And they've already had phone calls and orders placed because of that TV ad, or not TV ad, but the, the story that basically ran in the evening news. And that really happened here. Because of somebody at Antioch that cared and just is using their circle or their sphere of influence or the creativity that's, that's, that God has given them and doing something with it. And those little things are dominoes and they, they fall into other dominoes and things begin to happen. Um, somebody came forward last week uh, with a big gift. And so one of those administrators uh, in the, the office over there is paid for for a year because somebody stepped forward and, and gave the money um, for us to be able to pass on to ransomware. And those things really happen here. And I know we can get numb to this. I know we can think of just how big it is and, and what can I really do over there? What, what difference can I really make? And um, I, I think those are real emotions and real perspectives. And it's pessimistic, just like the fan letter the negative letter. And I think somehow we have to get these snapshots in our head of good things and good moments where people act on faith and accomplish something and we take these little snapshots like postcards and we flip, we flip them over and we write on the back something really happened and we start to file those away. Um, and that's what I'm excited about. That's what I want to see happen. And so if you remember where we started this whole human rights series, it was with the recognition that because of the sheer enormity of it or our own ignorance or, or whatever's going on, that we don't do what we should do. There's a verse in Jeremiah, and it's interesting. The king is kind of being taken to task and... The prophet is basically comparing him to his father, who is King Josiah, who is this amazing, wonderful king. And it says this, Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Cedar being the ritzy home-building material of their day. Does it make you a king to have all your money? 
Did not your father have food and drink? Yet he did what was right and just. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. See, God is saying that, don't you understand when you will do what I want you to do and to, to, to have my values in my heart for the world and the needy and all these other things, instead of exhausting yourself on being rich and having all these other things, don't you realize I'm going to take care of you? Don't you realize it will go well with you? And so in the middle of our fear of letting go of what we think gives us significance, of, of the risk of of praying the prayer that Dave Rogers prayed. In the middle of that risk, God says, no, just do what I said to do, and all will go with well with you. And so if you remember, I used the analogy of the Titanic. And so I want to um, show you that clip right now, and maybe it'll drive the point home. First Rose, hold on just a little bit longer, then they'd roll away for the suction, but now they'll be coming back. You don't understand. If we go back, they'll swamp the boat, they'll pull us right down, I'm telling you. Knock it off. You're scaring me. Come on, girls. Grab an oar. Let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now, do you people want to live or do you want to die? I don't understand a one of you. What's the matter with you? It's your men out there. There's plenty of room for more. And there'll be one less on this boat. If you don't shut that hole in your face. What scares me is the role I'm in in my life is, is sitting there on the bow of a boat. Um, that's the role I'm in in my life. And, and let me be brutally honest with you, um, pastors struggle greatly with the whole idea of um, rallying their congregations to take the boats back to the people in the water. Um, they're blowing the whistles, they're saying return with the boats, and pastors struggle greatly. You want to know why? Because um, pastors do this thing, we stomp out campfires for fear of wildfires. We stomp out campfires because campfires can turn into wildfires. And so if we get the congregation going and stirred up, what about the worship pastor we need this year and the children's ministries pastor? And if, if, we, if we so rally the church towards this cause, what if it ends up 
um, capsizing our little boat and we no longer have the resources that we need to, to make budget. And, and Antioch's in that spot. And so you, you know why I know that pastors struggle? I haven't talked to any other ones. I've just looked in my own heart. And I know that I struggle. And where I have to go with that is to believe that God is big enough to take care of our needs and to take care of the needs in the world. And if we're moving to take care of the needs in the world, that God is big enough to support us. Remember what it said to the the foolish king who is not willing to let go of all the stuff he's hoarded and and the prophet is just saying, don't you get it? Your, Your father, Josiah, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy and so all went well. And that's what it means to live by faith, right? And so... Sitting in the front of those boats, um, the challenge for pastors and leaders and elders is that in the face of our own self-interest, we have to trust God and go and give and sacrifice and risk. Um, So here's the interesting conclusion uh, to my thoughts on this whole series. Um, the atheist, the French athe- uh, the French atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, um, one of the leading existentialist thinkers, basically he wrote a book, uh, a novel called No Exit. And the last line in this novel, this play kind of called No Exit, and it's this fictional tale of like kind of three people waiting after death, like in this holding room or whatever. And the the final line is, hell is to be looked on by other people. And what he basically was saying there, the whole existentialist philosophy that he had was that man is radically free. We are our own unique individual. We always have freedom. We have the freedom to choose how we're going to respond, even if we're straight-jacketed. We are radically free. We're radical individuals. And that's where our identity is. That's where our uniqueness is. That's where our value and our worth is. And when people look at us, it objectifies us. We are subjects, okay, and that's the value. But when people look at us, it reduces us from a subject to an object, and that's hell. And so hell is to be looked on by other people because it diminishes my individuality. Now contrast that with what George MacDonald, um, the, the Scottish pastor, said in the late 1800s. And George MacDonald said this, The one principle of hell is this. I am my own. I am my own. And so when Jesus prays at the end, right before he's going to die, he prays and he doesn't say, God, help give these people the strength to maintain their own unique 
freedom and individuality. Image is everything, God, and it's hard work. And so give them the strength to keep their MySpace fresh and give them the, the insight to know which pictures and which things that they can do that would really maximize self so that their unique individuality, their subjectivity would remain fixed and intact. God, help them. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting. We're Americans. It's exhausting. We know it. Rather, Jesus prayed this. Um, God, it's going to be almost impossible for them to let go of that and actually find unity and community and oneness. God, help them with that. Because the whole goal here is that someday they might be, they might be like you and I are. And that's of, of one mind and one spirit, completely united. And so God give them that strength. And so Jesus understands that our joy and our happiness and our, our value is tied up with others. That it's other people that in some sense make us important. And there's those movies where there's only one person left in the whole world and there's no value outside of, of we and community. And so Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. Proverbs says, um, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. A generous man will prosper. And so Jesus turns that complete paradigm on its head and says, it's counterintuitive, but when you start to give and when you start to love, you're going you're to find true significance. That's when it's going to be heaped up on you and you're going to receive the value. And you're going to know that you are where God would have you be. You're going to sleep well at night. You're not going to scratch your head in a grass hut in Africa. You're going to have peace of mind because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and mercy and, and all of those wonderful things. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, joy is the serious business of heaven. I love that. Joy is the serious business of heaven. When we go and the self is removed, it's burned away like chaff and we're finally all together, that's joy. And it's going to be some serious joy. As if it's our whole business kind of joy. And so, um, this human rights series hinges on this for me. That it's not about us. That we need to... Um, somehow not be afraid of campfires that might turn into wildfires, that we don't worry as leaders about our own stuff, that we really look at other people and we really get excited that joy is to love, joy is to give, joy is to meet the needs, joy is to see the smile in others, that that's where it's at. And so we tried to encapsulate this and we wanted to leave us all after this three-week series with something that would continue that whole momentum. And so we thought of these, uh, these bands, these rubber bands, uh, bracelet things. And so... We decided, you know what, let's get these made up for the congregation. And we can hand them out on the way out, and we can take them with us, and people will wear them for a week or a month or six months or a year. And if you don't wear things like this, put it on your mirror, put it in your bathroom, anywhere where you're going to see it. Uh, use it as a, a collar for your chihuahua. I don't care. Um, but, but, but somewhere where it's just going to speak back to you, and it's going to have the symbolism of this whole series and 
And we couldn't get away from like Dr. Phil um, lines. <laughs> and so we just printed simply on them, um, it's not about me. It's not about me. And as we wear these, that maybe it would be something that would point us to others and we would realize it's not about me. Now, Courtney wanted something different. She wanted it to say, people are dying, get over yourself. Um, which I think was too many words. Um, but may we realize that there's something marvelous here. I mean, don't miss me. That joy that you hunger for, that happiness that, that's on your mind all the time, God put that there. It's a homing beacon. And it's pointing you to give so that it can be satisfied. Happiness isn't wrong. Joy isn't wrong. It's just that we're buying into this lie that we're going to find it in these other things and it's futile and that's why Americans are so depressed. And so don't get down on happiness. Get down on ignorance or laziness or fear or lack of faith. And get excited about the opportunities that God has given us. There's whistles blowing. Bring the boats back. Let's pray. Father, just may you take this congregation and may you just put us in the middle of the fire. Refine us again and again and again and again until we're not maybe the biggest church in this town, but we're willing to just charge hell with the squirt guns that we're willing to sacrifice, that we, we have faith that's undeniable. And in all of that, just I do pray that you would fan into flame our joy, that that would be in, unmistakable, and that others might really get it by looking at us, that the way to live the good life is to follow you And to serve others, it is better to give than to receive. And and Father, we cannot outgive you. I just pray that you're amazing because something has really happened here. And I wanted to share some of those stories with you. And and I'll share the story of Courtney, who in researching all of this stuff, came across a, a news article of a brothel where illegal aliens, women, were being kept as slaves right outside of San Diego. And that this was um, raided up or kind of busted up. And it was right near her dad's church. And her dad's church is a huge church of thousands of people. And she basically got on the phone and called down there and said, do you guys realize this stuff is happening right in your backyard? And they they basically said no. And, they, and she kind of told them what was going on. And they mobilized or are mobilizing a ministry to reach out to these these women and, and bring them in and try and, and, and give them healing. And so by just calling down there and spreading that word, a whole ministry in this big church is kind of being birthed. Um, it's something that really happened just a couple weeks ago. There's uh, one of our high school girls um, who came into the office uh, a week and a half ago and came in with a, just a tremendous amount of energy and um, burst in and basically said, can I, I go to Summit High? And we have this little shack where we sell 
sweatshirts, Summit High sweatshirts. And you know what, Ken, the, the teacher that's responsible for that shack, he goes to Antioch. <laughs> wow. Oh, I didn't know that, you know. And, and she's like, and I need Dave Rogers' contact info from ransomware because we're going to start selling that stuff in our school shack, the clothing shack. I was just like, no way, you know. And so I gave her the number and all this. And so it's funny, Dave, um, Dave Rogers and I were talking this morning before the first service, and she called him. And now the idea, her idea, or where she's at, it's, it's ballooned to um, we're going to try and start a fundraising thing at Summit and then challenge the other schools, Mountain View and Bend High, um, to a competition to see who can raise the most amount of money. And if you knew this girl, um, I think she can pull it off. You know, and that really happened here. It did. And just this week on Thursday night, uh, the local news station did a whole, a whole video piece on ransomware and, and Dave Rogers. And that's because Chris Cass works for KTVZ. And he basically walked down and, and shared with his friends down there, um, hey, I've got a news story for you. And so they went and they interviewed Dave Rogers and this Thursday on the evening news in central Oregon, here's this story about women being freed out of the the sex trafficking industry. And Dave says they've already gotten orders and phone calls and support that's come in from just that news piece that ran on Thursday. And that really happened here at Antioch in Bend, just a small church. And I share those things because I think we've got to boil it down to the idea that we can all do something. Those are dominoes that begin to hit other dominoes and things begin to happen and connections get made and God puts us in places where we have relationships or a network or resources or, or creativity that will allow us to do something and that something matters. And it it really happens. And we can be pessimistic like the person that wrote that letter and just go, what does it really matter? Why even tell these stories? It's so big and, and nothing really changes anything except Congress or the President of the United States or whatever. Um, but that's not the calling that we have as Christians is to be pessimistic and to step away and do nothing. The calling we have is, is to look at even the least of these and to do all that we can uh, with everything that we've got to make a difference. And so if you remember the, the beginning of this series, I talked about the Titanic and how all of this had made me realize in some sense that, that I'm a hypocrite, um, that I stand in this position of, of being able to see so much that's going on in the world and having done less than what is sufficient to make a difference. So I wanted to show you that clip from Titanic so that we could try and frame the issue. Return the boats! The boats are coming back for us, Rose. Hold on just a little bit longer. They they had to roll away for the suction, but... Now they'll be coming back. Please! Help us!
You don't understand. If we go back, they'll swamp the boat. They'll pull us right down, I'm telling you. Knock it off. You're scaring me. Come on, girls. Grab an oar. Let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now, do you people want to live or do you want to die? I don't understand a one of you. What's the matter with you? It's your men out there. There's plenty of room for more. And there'll be one less on this boat. If you don't shut that hole in your face. Um, if I was a character in that, I'd have been the guy on the bow of the boat. Oh, because I'm in leadership. And here's what I've learned as pastors, as much as any other leader, if you're a leader in this room, um, we do something where we'll stamp out campfires for fear of wildfires. We'll bark at the person who's beginning to try and do something good and create some heat, and we'll... we'll We'll stamp it out because we don't know if we can control it and the risk is too great and the consequences are too big and, and so we're afraid and so we'll squash it. Um, and pastors do that. And I'll tell you how I know. Um, not because I've talked to any other pastors, um, but because I've looked in my own heart. And here's the emotions I have. Um, Antioch needs a lot of money. We, we need, we're going to need to hire a worship pastor and a children's ministries pastor in the next year or so here. Um, and so if we start sharing budgets from ransomware, if we start creating energy or enthusiasm or excitement or emotion that, that, that's out there for those people blowing the whistle saying, bring the boats back, then maybe we won't be able to make budget or hire the pastor that we need. And, and I'm afraid. So maybe I should just stomp it out. Maybe we should just go this far, but no further. Um, and so I, I haven't talked to any other pastors. I've, I've just looked in my own heart. Uh, and, and here's the lesson for me. I have to believe that God is big enough to take care of our needs as well as empower us to meet the needs of this world. That, that if we're looking there and throwing what we've got there, that somehow God will bring enough here. Um, now, I, it's weird. We were watching, um, my family, I just had thought of this a minute ago, but we were watching this last year the, the news show when it was the beginning of Oprah's Leadership Academy in, I think it's South Africa. Do you guys remember that? And there's a whole show on it. And my oldest daughter, Mary Joy, was up. And I didn't realize that this was going to traumatize her. But they kept doing these vignettes um, of what was going on in Africa. And when I went to put her to bed, I left her, I walked away, and, and then I heard her sobbing. Um, so, you know, you go in there, and she's sobbing. Um, and she takes all her money, it's like two bucks, you know, and change. And Daddy, I want to give it to those people. She never um, thought, gee, if I give all my two bucks to those people, 
Uh, maybe dad won't take care of me anymore. Maybe he won't put a roof over my head. Maybe he won't feed me. Maybe he won't um, provide. And I think maybe that's why uh, Christ liked children so much and said that we should have uh, the faith of a child. Because a child can look at that and just throw everything they've got at it and trust that dad is going to still take care of them. It's not an either or. And, and maybe the more we kind of grow into adulthood and become leaders and managers and all that, we see the risks too much and we play God and we begin to get wrapped up in the what if scenarios and our faith dwindles and we begin to try and hedge our bets and manage risk. Um, so I think of my daughter, you know, and um, I'm afraid to be like her. I'm afraid to have the faith of a child because it really means that God's going to have to show up and he's going to have to deliver. And there's a passage in Jeremiah that I, I think is amazing. And, and in Jeremiah What's happening is he's scolding the king who is not like his father. And his father was Josiah and Josiah was a great king. And this is what the prophet says to him. He says this, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Because cedar was like the big fancy house building good or whatever, like the material Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? Wasn't he taken care of? Didn't he have enough? He did what was right and just, and so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. And so um, we're over here... And we're clinging to our cedar and saying, I got to keep fighting for this stuff because if I let go for one minute, it's going to slip through my fingers and go away. And then I won't have it. And that's what's important. And this is my significance. And God's saying, no, your significance is over here. And you don't need to be afraid because didn't I take care of your father? Haven't I proven myself to you that I am your father and I bless those who give? I take care of them. And we can't outgive God. And so in Proverbs, when it says, he refreshes others, will himself be refreshed. A generous man will prosper. It's God saying, don't you understand the way I built this world to work? As you give and as you empty out, I'll pour back in. You just trust me. Test me on it. But if you're over here clinging to this, because we can't do both, because we only have 24 hours in a day and we only have so much resources. And so if we leverage ourselves to this, God's going to look at us and say, you don't even know me. Because your father, King Josiah, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well with him. And is that not what it means to know me? And so as I processed through this whole thing and was trying to figure out how do we wrap up the human rights deal, um, I thought of the French atheist philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, and he's kind of like one of the key thinkers in existentialism. And he wrote a book that's kind of a, a fictional thing. And the last line in this book was this, hell is to be looked at by other people. 
There was three people in this holding room between like heaven and hell. And he reduces it down to this conclusion. Hell is to be looked upon by other people. And the reason for that is simple. He believed that, that man was radically free. No matter what happens, we have the freedom to choose how we're going to respond to something. We're radically free. We're, we're radical individuals. And we have that. And that's the greatest thing. That's the greatest thing about being human to Jean-Paul Sartre. And so that has to be preserved, and that's our subjectivity. And when other people look at us and they reduce us down to labels and put us in a box, it makes us a subject rather an object, and that is the worst thing that could happen because man is dignified in our individuality. Now contrast that with what George MacDonald says. And George MacDonald, the, the pastor, Scottish pastor in the late 1800s, says this, the one principle of hell is... I am my own. And so we're caught up in this idea that what makes us great is our own individuality. And when Jesus goes to pray at the end of his life to God about us and about our needs, and he's just dying over like the stress of this, God, you have to take care of these people of mine. He doesn't pray. Now, God, holding on to their individuality and their freedom and all their nice stuff is so hard. Give them strength for that. They're... Image is so important. Give them insight in how to to set up their MySpace page and and to pick the right picture that will just communicate the right things to other people so that they will have the right image. And God, help them make enough money so they can keep buying the right clothes. And and God, you got to give them strength because this is difficult stuff. He doesn't even go there. He just says, God, (laughs) that is so attractive. It's such a lie that it sucks them in. They give them strength to come out of that and help them be united, to lay aside their own individuality and their own freedom so that they can be community, so that they can be one. And Jesus makes the whole goal that they may be like you and I are together. Because the value for Christ isn't in us as individuals, but it's in us as a community together as a family. And so Jesus gets this. And so he says it's better to give than to receive. It is better to give than to receive. You pour yourself out on others and you knit together the fabric of community because that's better by far than you just accumulating the cedar. And Jesus goes even further and and he understands that that's where our joy is going to come in that the Holy Spirit will bless us, will take care of us, and the significance that we crave over here with our image, he's going to give us over here as we empty ourselves out. And so the, the fruit of the, of the Spirit is what? 